Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Two Weird Hungry Girls podcast. I'm Phoebe. Thanks for tuning in. In this episode, I had the opportunity to sit down and chat with James Beard award-winning author David Sachs. David is a freelance writer specializing in business and food. You can find his writing in the New York Times, Bloomberg Business Week, and Sevher, also the Grid Toronto, in addition to other publications. He is the author of Save the Deli, but it was his book, The Tastemakers, Why We're Crazy for Cupcakes But Fed Up with Fondue, that was the topic of discussion um, this evening. He came to town to speak with students at Penn State University about food trends and why we eat what we do. He breaks it down in his book into four kinds of food trends, the cultural, agricultural, chef, and health trends. I hope you enjoy this discussion with David and learn a little something interesting about why we eat what we do. So I'm here with David Sachs, the author of Tastemaker. The Tastemakers. The Tastemakers. Why we're crazy for cupcakes but fed up with fondue. And you've authored other books as well. Yeah, this is my second book. Mm -hmm. The first one was called Save the Deli, which was about the Jewish deli business. Mm -hmm. Um, And that one kind of led to this one in a way because uh, I was looking at, you know, the in and out, the sort of rise and fall of that cuisine and its popularity. And that kind of led me to a bigger question about how our sense of taste is shaped, how it's so elastic, what makes us crave something one day that we really didn't know about or even care about, um, you know, a day or a week before. And, uh, and, and that kind of is the story of food trends. Right. Who, who coined that word tastemakers? I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) Certainly not me. (laughs) Okay. So you define four types of food trends in the book. Right. Different ways that, that trends can really start. And they of course converge, but, um, you have sort of cultural trends. So, you know, the example I give is the cupcake trend where Mm -hmm. something existed, it was common, everybody had sort of eaten it and known it, but all of a sudden it acquires this whole new cultural identity and cachet. It becomes popular, it becomes sexy, it becomes fashionable, it becomes desirable. And you see this surge of economic activity around it. Is it possible, um, because I'm going to jump in and interrupt and go to the the agricultural food trend. Mm-hmm. Is it ever po- is it ever possible that an agricultural food trend, as you define it, I'll let you define it. Is it popular that ever, or will that ever become like sexy and popular, like yeah. a cultural food <sighs> trend? Kale, right? I mean, I, I think um, you know, kale is kale is a great one where you have that intersection or organics, mm-hmm. where again those those two things, um, you know, they the kale had a cultural influence and it had a health trend influence. Um, but you know, it was also had to do with the way that people were growing kale and breeding kale. Uh, something like the, the success of the honey crisp apple is a great one, right? right? Where a new variety comes up and it's, you know, the, the, the result of decades of efforts of plant breeding and agricultural science, but suddenly becomes, you know, a must eat item, a must have apple. Um, you know, what you've seen in, uh, in the meat world with, you know, a certain cuts of steak, for instance, where they become suddenly popular. And that's, um, you know, something like the flat iron steak, the petite tender, which people hadn't even heard about. Cause I mean, it was literally like ag, you know, the beef 
research institute in Colorado being like, how else can we cut this animal up? Mm -hmm. um, but they become popular and they become, you know, steaks that go on menus and you find in the butcher shop and, and suddenly they enter that cultural zeitgeist of eating. So, mm -hmm. um, so it is, it, it does. They, I think it's a much harder trend to start and they, mm -hmm. they obviously take a longer time to develop and grow because they literally have to develop and grow. Exactly. Now talking, now moving from agricultural to the chef. Right. I, the chef trend I think is the, the one that, um, people sort of understand the most mm -hmm. and they associate the most with food trends, you know, a, a popular chef at a restaurant, whether it's local, whether it's regional, whether it's national does something and that dish becomes something big or that style of cooking becomes really big. I mean, right. uh, <clears throat> last night in, um, in Philadelphia, I had dinner at Zahav, which is the Israeli, restaurant uh, of a local chef, Michael Solonoff, which has become incredibly popular and he just has a best-selling cookbook and there's been tons of articles written about it. Uh, and that's influenced other people to cook, um, you know, that sort of Middle Eastern style of food mm -hmm. in not just in Philadelphia and regionally, but, you know, all over the United States and increasingly around the world. And that, of course, comes from other chefs like Yotemoto Lengi out of London, who's been doing that sort of food and it reflects around. So, so, you know, today chefs have a much bigger voice than they ever had. Mm -hmm. And that really propels those, um, those trends very quickly and very sort mm -hmm. of loudly. Now, um, when you talk about the restaurant that you had, that you ate at it last night, yes. um, now he's sticking to traditional foods, right? Like he's not gone, uh, like I, in your video online, I, I, your video online is kind of satirical, right? Very. Okay. Not even kind of. My mom was worried. She's like, who is this man who would ever make liver ice cream? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That was a, that yeah. was an entirely tongue yes. in cheek. Okay. So that's that. I thought it was kind of funny. It was like, and I had to explain to her, um, no, this is, he's just really trying. But I'm to sure someone does that. That's the thing, right? Yeah. So that's the thing with a, a chef trend. When is enough enough that it's just a little too much? And does anything really come of Anything that's that outlandish that that's sticks? A, that's a good question. I mean, there is an element of this food trend um, universe we're living in now where, especially with chefs, that there is because the ability of a chef to sort of create and, and amplify a trend is so big, there's tremendous pressure on a lot of them to do it. And so there's a criticism that a lot of chefs are cooking to trends that yeah. they're instead of making, you know, something that just tastes really good and, and, and excellent. They're, they're trying to do something that's going to, you know, blow up on Instagram and become big. And, and, and they make these sort of outlandish mm -hmm. dishes with like bone marrow smeared on everything. Like mm -hmm. it's a condiment. Yeah. Um, and so you get these experiments in crazy inedible stuff. Um, you know, blood pig's blood ice cream or whatever mm -hmm. uh, which i actually had once it was good really uh, yeah no. surprisingly oh, yes no. chocolate okay. chocolate pig's blood ice cream um but uh you know when does it get too much yeah when it doesn't taste good right and and at the end of the day that's the ultimate judge right like mm -hmm. anybody can get you to eat you know if you're an adventurous eater you could anybody can get you to try something once but to get you to go back and eat it multiple times and make it a regular staple in the way that you cook and what you would order in the way that you shop those are the, that's what separates the trends from the fads. Okay. Now you talked about, you brought up Instagram mm -hmm. and in the book, you talk about, um, journalism being integral, especially in cultural, um, food trends. Mm -hmm. So with millennials now, I think of them being so connected online socially 
But I think like our generation, like food was something different. Um, and when we connected, it was like, an, I don't want to say it was authentic. Cause mm-hmm. Of course, their experiences aren't inauthentic, but we sat around the table and we didn't have devices. There might have been TV and there might have been TV trays, but like the experience was different. Mm-hmm. So I guess, what do you think might be happening when you read about millennials' food habits being things that are convenience items? Right. Um, like, do you think it's going to have like a huge impact? I, I think on- that. You know, I've kind of realized that the term millennial is mm-hmm. is broadly and crudely applied to an entire generation that spans, I don't know, in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so within that, you have people who, you know, are only eat in cars and at their desk and only right. eat convenience settings. But you also have the very same back to the farm, slow, yeah. you know, slow food, fork to table movement um, chefs and cooks and foodies who are the 20 year olds who are like brining their own pickles in their dorm rooms Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and seeking out that deeper connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's something that, that you find that there's always going to be people who are, are very much into that and, and, um, and, uh, you know, see that as the way that eating is going and, value that, you know, social experience, even if they are taking photos of it and chatting about every meal they've eaten and sort of collecting trophies. Uh, and there's always going to be people who just want to eat and don't really yeah. care about it. Uh, and I think you get that in every age group. What, what's bigger now is that there's just far more of those people because the access to information about food and the conversations around food culture is so much more mainstream than, you know, when we were in college, for example, when it was a very small minority, like it was, it was very snobby to care about food mm-hmm. in your twenties, um, uh, you know, 10 years ago or so, or 15 years ago. And, um, and now it's normal, right? Mm-hmm. It's normal for teenagers to like talk about their favorite farm. Right. Exactly. So there's go still... to the farmer's market yes. with your mom and it'll be a cool thing. So there's still some kind of grounding, I think. Like we're not going to be eating. Remember that space age ice cream that was yes. cool. So like the I don't know the, I, the space ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. I remember getting it in Florida. That's not going to be happening. That's not like any time in the near future. Like I mean, it is, but it's happening <laughs> at like these hipster restaurants where people are lining up around the block and paying for it. Right? Yeah, I see. That's what's going to happen then with the, um, chef, the chef trend. What do you do? You think of thinking of food trends? Do you think that consumers are starting to look at as we're becoming more educated, especially with um, um, social media? Do you think that we're that the consumers are starting to look at food producers the same way that we look at politicians? Like whose best interest? Oh, this is a really, bad day to ask. That. I know. <laughs> Donald it, Trump having just won oh, Super Tuesday yesterday. Right? So I know. what would be the equivalent of Donald Trump in a food? I guess a Chick-fil-A sandwich. I know. <laughs> or like or something that some sort of fast food yeah. item. I mean, do you think that we're starting to look at food producers the same way? Like questioning yes. now? Or yes and no. I think I think do we still buy the packaging and are happily? I, I happily think so. I think there is. I think it, it's a double-edged sword, right? It, that that same media that can amplify, let's say, greater scrutiny and education around, mm-hmm. you know, what's going in your Chipotle or where mm-hmm. the sourcing actually happens for, um, you know, a packaged food product or the, the reality around nutrition is also the same media that they can deliver vastly more marketing material from all those companies and does successfully. Um, so it's a much more competitive landscape. It's much more fast moving in that as well, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't just trickle out from newspapers. It's coming from sort of all sides and it's, it's very, there's a lot of noise around it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so it's hard to say. I mean, you know, I, obviously the growth of farmers markets, the growth of organic food production and sales, you know, the, if you look at the statistics of it from the Bureau of, of Commerce, I think, um, you know, that those things are, are continually growing up and up right. and up. Um, but, you know, we're also getting fatter and eating more right. crap than ever before. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's never one or the other. It always seems mm-hmm. to be both. Um, but, the, you know, as those trends become more mainstream, it gives permission for a lot more people and a lot more companies like Walmart and McDonald's right. to sort of go into it because it's not a virtuous thing. It's, it's just good business. Mm-hmm. There's money to be made by selling, you know, the, by a fast food chain talking about how it sources its tomatoes locally right. and, you know, in terms of labor. And mm-hmm. if there's money to be made from it, then others are going to do it as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think you talk about that in the book. I want to hear more about that. Um, I think people should probably read more about it in the book, but you talk about the, um, how money drives what we eat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the, the food business is a business, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, um, as good as someone's, as lofty as someone's ambitions may be, whether they are ambitions of taste and creativity or whether they're ambitions of sort of political ideology wrapped up in the way that food is produced, uh, you know, if, if, if it doesn't work out that, you know, they can make money off it, then that idea will, will wither around the vine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, um, it's always, uh, at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to, to brass tacks, right? This mm-hmm. is a business. And so what is economically right. viable, um, organic production, you know, production of organic food, local food wasn't economically viable for a long time until, the collective taste of the society changed to a point where it becomes economically viable at a scale that allows those producers to sort of do it. And Mm -hmm. there's always going to be people who are unhappy with that. You know, there Mm -hmm. is, um, I gave a talk the other night and there was, you know, some woman in the audience who was really angry that I was talking about big farms doing organic and it should be little producers. It's like, well, you know, if you Mm -hmm. have an idealism around that, I remember reading somewhere a couple of years ago, it's like, Oh, you know, the, the end, it'll be terrible when there's an organic Snickers. That's when you know the movement's oh. done. It's like, actually, that's when the movement's reached its, like, that's when right. it's really mainstream. Because mm-hmm. if the goal of organic is to get pesticides yep. out of, and, and other fertilizers, artificial petro, petrochemical fertilizers out of the food system mm-hmm. and out of the environment, then only when you reach that scale of, of you know, mass production is, is when it can actually have that benefit. Right. And if it's just something for, like, farmers market people and Mm -hmm. you know wealthy people to sort of have then it's 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 a frivolous luxury exactly yeah well i mean i don't know about the snickers but that's that's a necessity (laughs) snickers right it's a necessity okay so speaking of snickers um (laughs) my burning question is what are what are some of like your favorite comfort foods Mm. i mean i think we've become so disconnected somehow from like the foods from our youth so i'm guessing that you probably have comfort foods that your mom or yeah 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 grandparents and, uh, so, made that you love yeah like my mom's chicken soup with matzo balls mm-hmm. is still the sort of staple mm-hmm. and uh, it actually keeps getting better every time she makes it which is really good mm-hmm. um, or French toast for me it's mm-hmm. like now every Saturday I cook French toast for my daughter mm-hmm. that's for her the, even the other Saturday morning she's yeah. like. Where's my French toast uh-huh. first thing in the morning? It's like, oh my god! How old is she? Like, can two you and teach a half. her? How to, oh, okay. So she's yeah. not ready to learn yet to get. She can stress. kind of, yeah. I've gotten her to like beat the eggs and mm-hmm. stuff. It's 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 a dirty mess. That's but. a great thing to teach her. Yeah, 
Because she'll always do that. Well, you don't. No, she won't. You don't think? Oh, you don't know. You don't, maybe. You're right, maybe. So when you do your French toast, it's just straight up traditional French toast. Yeah, I do um, challah bread. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you don't want it too dense. You want it kind of airy so we Mm -hmm. can soak it up a bit. Um, What else do I put in it? I guess milk. Sometimes I'll Mm -hmm. put yogurt. If there, I find yogurt yeah. almost instead of milk mm-hmm. beating, it gives it something, yeah. maybe the, like the thickness of it, the, the back, the like fermentation of the bacteria, not like I leave mm-hmm. it overnight. Um, cinnamon, vanilla, that's it. That's it. Sometimes maybe a little grated orange zest, but, mm-hmm. but keep my it wife simple. hates that. Yeah. That for me, that's my thing. Uh-huh. I've done it. I've also done, I've added like half a shot of bourbon or something just to. Oh, that rum chata. Have you tried that yet? No. My father-in-law does that, that rum chata. What is that? Well, it's some kind of, um, it's a horchata drink. So it's got the... um, With rum. Yes. Wow. It's like a creamy rum drink with the spice, the cinnamon and the spice. Oh, that sounds good. My father-in-law is addicted. No way. Yeah, he loves that stuff. Horchata. Horchata. Try that. Uh, Now we're talking. Yeah. Yeah. That's good for... I don't have sorts of horchata in Canada. Yeah. Oh, that's too You'll have to grab some in Pennsylvania on your way out. So, um, David, how can people find you online? How can they find me? Online? Yeah, how can they find your Googling. books? And uh-huh. oh, I mean, the books are you know uh, where greater books are sold, mm-hmm. and um, otherwise, I'm on Twitter mm-hmm. at Sax David S A X, like a saxophone. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. And watch the video on the website. Yes. What's your web web address? Good question. Tastemakersbook.com. I think that's what maybe. it is. Okay, you'll Google it. You'll find it. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks so much My for pleasure. sharing thanks your you. time. It's great. I am really uh, interested in hearing uh, the rest of the lecture, Excellent. especially with the college students. I'm interested to hear their thoughts. Yeah. And yeah. And these are food and some of them are in the food and beverage program. So that'll okay, be good. really cool. Okay. So thanks so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Okay. Thanks for tuning in guys. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat with David. After the two of us spoke, he went to speak with the Penn State students. There was a lot of discussion about food trends as they relate to the evolution of our taste, the simple formula that creates a successful food trend, but most interestingly, how food trends affect our communication. So it was a lot of fun. He also mentioned some things that he sees as potential food trends coming up, um, which would be Indian food and cooking over open flames. So if you'd like to find out more about David's book, The Tastemakers, head to tastemakerbook.com and you can find an audio excerpt so you can listen to about an hour's worth of the book. And you can also click on a simple little video. It's kind of fun. It'll put a smile on your face. So check out tastemakersbook.com and you can find David on the social media links that are provided on the page as well. So thanks for tuning into this episode. You can find me at phoebespurefood.com. Please make sure to subscribe to the blog so you never miss an interview or a recipe. But please do me a huge favor and leave a review. Let me know what you think about this episode what you'd like to hear more of on the podcast. And that's simple to do. You can just do that in iTunes. So I really appreciate you tuning in and thank you subscribers um, for making this possible. This is a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Thanks so much, guys. Bye.